Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Giant rats terrorize Iran. A couple brings their kids to church and things do not go well. And then we talk about the great fires of 1871. You know about the Chicago fire. It's a nursery rhyme, I think. But do you know about the other fires in America that same day? That's important that it's the same day. More death, more destruction, and all the fires may have been caused by something out of this world. Today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you're having a great day too. I'm putting together some stuff for our New Year's Eve episode. And I know most people will be listening to this one on New Year's Eve, so technically it's the New Year's Day episode, but we will be having some stuff come out. Now, other than that little note, oh, and I have a special episode. I have a regular episode coming out for New Year's Day, and then I have a special episode. It's actually, it's a behind-the-scenes story of the creation of Dead Rabbit. And you're thinking, Chase, so that's a little ridiculous. <laughs> You've only been around for six months. However... I want to know that type of stuff. I love director's commentaries and stuff like that. It'll be a bonus episode. It'll just be sitting there for you if you want to listen to it. I really go into depth about how the show was created, some of the obstacles I've overcome, my least favorite episode, the episode that almost made me quit the show. I talk about that. I talk about my favorite episodes, the episodes that I think have had the most impact on the growth of the show. And then I talk about a controversy and the time the podcast was almost canceled, not because of me, but because of some issues going on behind the scenes. So all of that stuff will be in our bonus episode. You'll get your regular one, and then you'll get a special bonus one as well. So let's go ahead and get started here. So first off, let's go ahead and start talking about Iran. So right now, so apparently, I didn't know this, but apparently Iran has always had a rat problem. Rodents, giant rodents. And they've constantly been poisoning them. And eventually, when you poison a rat so many times, it stops working after a certain point. I guess 75% of the rats in Britain are immune to, what's what would it be called? Uh, Well, rat poison, obviously, but I'm sure it has a technical name like raticide or mouseicide or whatever their uh, genus is. It's probably listed in there as well. But anyway, so Iran has been trying to poison the rats, and this is, you know, fairly successful, but rats develop an immunity to poison. That's just something that happens, apparently. So then they began, no joke, they began irradiating them. They're like, well, if the poison doesn't work, no one's immune to radiation. Let's just basically, like, irradiate their homes. Now, yes, that is the setup for every 1950s movie ever. And Iran is now experiencing a 1950s movie. Because the rats are as big as cats. They're giant mutant rats. And Iran, the government of Iran has said... They're mutants. They've mutated from their radioactivity, and now they're huge. And I guess they're having a lot of snow melt off over there, and it's flooding the rat's nest. So the country is just awash in rats. Big, smelly, all wet because the water came in their homes. Rats are disgusting. I remember once I was walking down the street here in Hood River at like 4 in the morning. And I'm walking in between two restaurants. 
Well, I'm not like literally like walking in an alley between them, but I'm walking down the street and on one side, I'm not going to name the restaurants because this is really, I think it's gross. On one side of the street's one restaurant, on the other side of the street's this other restaurant, and I'm walking down the sidewalk and I see the biggest rat I've ever seen. It was the size, it looked like the size of a 12-pack of soda. It looked, okay, maybe that's a bit of an exaggeration. Okay, but an 8-pack of soda. And it crawls out of the sewer of one restaurant lazily walks across the street and crawls into the sewer of the next restaurant. And I was like, I'm never eating there again. That's disgusting. Of course I did <laughs> keep eating at both of those restaurants, but it was pretty gross to see something that large. And it was just wet and gross, man. So anyways, imagine that, but the two restaurants is the entire country of Iran. Now, the Iranian government is like, they're mutants. These rats have been mutated by radiation. They're giant. And scientists have said, you know, because scientists are kind of like, they're party poopers. They're like, that's not how mutations work. You can't just irradiate an animal and it gets bigger. This isn't a 1950s movie. It's probably just because they've just gotten big. These are survival of the fittest and the biggest rats are the kings. And you know what a rat king is? This is disgusting. I know I keep going off on tangents here, but a rat king, some people say they don't exist. Again, science scientists are party poopers, but... A rat king is when so many rats get caught in a tunnel, like a sewage tunnel, that their tails get tied together. You know how, like, you'll throw, like, three power cables in a box, and then, like, an hour later, you come back and they're all tangled up? Imagine that, but 100 rats, and their tails get tangled together, and they begin just rolling through the sewer. Because the the rats at the bottom are like, I can't, I can't breathe underwater. And so they'll push the ball so they get to the top, catch a breath and the rats on the bottom will be like so it just goes over and over again and they basically it's the real life equivalent of gelatinous ooze from D&D they just roll through the sewers eating people they don't live very long but only if they live to be like five minutes old or whatever it's still quite terrifying so back to the story that I'm trying to tell the rats in Iran are so just like vicious and huge that the Iranian government has said, we don't, believe, we don't believe you scientists. We believe that these guys are mutants. And how do you stop a mutant? Not with getting your own team of mutants. No, they have a team of dedicated snipers that now just hunt giant rats. Last count that I saw, they'd already killed 2,000 rats. But these, I mean, that would kind of be a cool job because you're just doing what you love, shooting stuff, and you become a better sniper because of it because they're, you know, smaller than a human. Uh, a, a rat the size of a cat is probably as good as a target like to get good at shooting people in the head. So, I mean, that's kind of grim. If, if we ever go to war with Iran, they're going to be like super good crack shots. Because they're like, man, I've been shooting womp rats in the desert since... Okay, that was a stupid joke. Okay, but anyway, so Iran, I do wish you luck. I hope you take care of your giant rat problem. And I'm on your side. I, I Not politically, but I'm on your side. I think they're mutants. Don't listen to the scientists. Scientists say that Pluto's not a planet, so what do they know? I know it's a different branch of science, but it's all the same, really. Our next story is part of new news. So this one's going to be a quick one, and it's kind of bizarre. Well, the whole thing's bizarre, but it's also bizarre how it ends. So we're in the magical, weird year of 2004. I'm learning, oh, and I looked, my new news folder still has like 200 other stories that I have to go through and find out if they're worth doing anything on. But 2004 was a was a banner year for weirdness, it's turning out. We're in the city of Rochester, which I believe is in New York, but maybe it's near New York. I'm pretty sure that's where Professor Xavier's School for Gifted Youngsters was, was in 
Rochester, but I could be wrong. But we're in the city of Rochester. It's 2004, that magical, magical year. This couple comes in to a church, bringing their three kids with them. A nine-year-old, a seven-year-old, and a two-year-old little baby person, right? They walk into church. It's nighttime. And, you know, in New York, I think in big cities, you can have churches that are open late. Or maybe they're 24 hours a day. I don't know. But usually there's, like, nuns walking around. I'm assuming this is a Catholic church. I've actually never seen a Protestant church open, like, really later than the service, maybe a little bit after. But anyways, they walk into a church of a denomination I do not know. There are nuns there, and the Protestants are like, why are you here? This is a Southern Baptist church. And they're like, sorry, we're lost, and we needed to pray. Anyways, the point of the story is that this couple walks in with their kids, and they're kind of looking around, and no one really pays them any mind. They don't look, like, super weird, but they're a little sketchy. There's something about them that's kind of making people pay attention to them. Maybe it's just sixth sense. So what happens is one of the workers at the church, one of these nuns who's in the wrong church, is standing there. And she, I hope it's nuns. I have no idea. But anyways, it says, my notes say church workers. Maybe it was the bingo person. They hear the woman say to the husband, let's go make the sacrifice And then they kind of mill about the church for a while. And at this point, the church workers are like, okay, they they didn't seem super sketchy, but they seemed kind of sketchy. And now they're talking about making a sacrifice, so they call the police, which is probably a good thing, especially for what happens next. The police show up, they begin questioning the couple, take the couple back to the station. And when they're talking to the woman, she says... This is, they were going to sacrifice the kids in the church, the nine, the seven, and the two-year-old. It was their plan to go there, kind of look around, check the place out, and then sacrifice them. It's interesting because I wonder what their plan was with the other people there. I wonder what they, like, were they going to sacrifice them too? Like, was there just going to be this long receiving line of sacrificial offerings? Or were they just going to do it so quick and then not worry about it? Because her logic was this. This is what she told the police. She said, Jesus sacrificed himself for her, so she was going to sacrifice her boys to free her soul, which her interpretation of the Bible is a little off, because technically, according to the Bible, when Jesus sacrificed him, I always get, it's so funny, I always see a listener drop when I start talking about Jesus, but it'll only be 10 seconds. According to the Bible, Jesus sacrificed himself to save your soul, and then he doesn't go, hey man, pay it forward like he didn't there was no collateral added to any part of the bible as far as that goes but for whatever reason she had it in her head saying well he sacrificed himself for me so i'm going to sacrifice my kids for for to free my soul it's very very odd and what i think is interesting about this type of behavior is that she may have had that delusion but the husband was going along with it So it's just weird. I don't know if there was like drugs involved or something like that. So now we're in the year 2018, 14 years later. And so I'm like, well, what happened? No follow up to the story, no sentence, no conviction, nothing like that, which makes me think that the charges were vacated or she went to get mental counseling because technically she didn't commit a crime. I mean, you could say child endangerment or something like that. But as far as I could tell, she was never charged. Now, that doesn't mean she wasn't. It could just be that the news didn't cover it after a certain point. It was just another crazy person in Rochester. But yeah, weird story. Weird story. And it's a good thing those people were paying attention to what was going on because otherwise it could have gotten could have gotten bad. I mean, understatement. Three kids sacrificed. But yeah, it could have been pretty sucky. Okay, so the next story we're going to look at today is... Oh, yeah, this one was really interesting because I... I 
came stumbled across this on accident, really. I don't even know how I found it. But we're in the year. Let's hop in the Carpenter Copter. Carpenter Copter is actually pretty sturdy. It can handle these time warps. So 2004 is not really a time jump. We just kind of like turn our heads slightly and we're back in 2004. But when we're going way back in time, we want the Carpenter Copter. We want to ride in style and it can handle any sort of time warp. So... I don't know where we found that time warp. We were just at the airport and we slowly lifted off the ground slightly, disappeared back in time. But we are going back in time. We're going back to the year 1871. So when this helicopter appears out of nowhere, everyone's like, oh my God, it's a giant demon. It's super loud. And the pilot looks like he's really terrible at flying that thing, whatever it is. And we land and we jump out of it. It's a specific date. It's October 8th, 1871. Four days after my birthday, which would probably matter if I was born 100 years earlier than I actually was. So we're in 1871. It's October 8th. We're in the Midwest. I think it's the Midwest. It's like Chicago and Michigan and stuff like that. Wisconsin. So that's close. Is Illinois? I think that's more east. But anyways, it doesn't matter. We're in that area. And we land next to a farm. And we go and we see this woman milking a cow. And you guys all know the story. The Great Chicago Fire rushed through the city. It destroyed 3.3 square miles of the city, left 100,000 people homeless, which was one-third of the population at that time. 300 people died. It just raised the city. And the, the, the kind of joke explanation was the cow kicked over a lantern in Miss O'Leary's barn, and it started the Great Chicago Fire. That was an old nursery rhyme, and you, you, I think most people who, who hear the term Great Chicago Fire are like, oh, yeah, the one where the cow kicked it over. Now, apparently the fire, they did say started in that barn, but it didn't have nothing to do with the cow kicking it over. And everyone that got tons of news coverage, and they're like, oh, my God, like 3.3 square miles of a major city burned to the ground, 100,000 people homeless, 300 people dead. This is the most horrible fire tragedy that America has faced yet. But we're going to travel just a bit just a little bit over, to Michigan. Now it's the same day, the Great Michigan Fire. And, you know, they're probably like, they don't have internet or television, but they're can. they like, man, I heard something really bad happen in Chicago. I don't know how, but I know it, because I don't have a newspaper or a television, but I know it. The Great Michigan Fire spread across three cities, three different little townships, raised, just... That's a machine gun noise, but... That's a fire noise. You're like, Jason, I get it. You're quitting the sound effects. Something's on fire. In Michigan, 3,900 square miles burn. Now, it's not entire city squares, but you would have a city or a town, is probably a better term for it, just... I don't know why I'm doing gunshot noises. Go up. It would cut swaths through forests, just lighting everything up. 500 people or more killed across these three communities. And the reason why they go or more is because a lot, the place had, there was a big lumber industry. So you had a lot of lumberjacks there, people moving to that area specifically to cut trees down and then they would move on. So they don't know how many people died in the forest. They're like thinking it could be higher than 500 because we had people there cutting trees down that weren't members of the community. They're just kind of like migrant workers. So could be higher than 500. So definitely a bigger fire than. Chicago, 
as far as square miles, and more people died. But the problem was was that everyone was focused on Chicago because it was a big city. So people, well, the people in Michigan were focused on the fire right in front of them. But nationwide, people are like, oh my god, did you hear about Chicago? And Michigan's like, Ray, remember me? They're still like covered in soot. And the people are like, no, did you visit Chicago? Why why, why do you look like you just walked out of a fire? And they're like, ugh. But on the same day as the Great Chicago Fire, as the Great Michigan Fire, in Wisconsin, we're going to hop in the Carpenter Copter because we want to go here and visit this place. We want a firsthand account of Pastigo Fire. Pestigo was a community in Wisconsin, and it was like this town, I think is, again, a good word for it, and it kind of looped around this bay. You had this water thing in the middle of it, a lake is probably the scientific term, a community wrapped around like a horseshoe. On October 8th, 1871, Pestigo fire starts. Now, starts out in the field and rapidly grows. And the reason why is there was a cold front coming in, and it created very, very quickly what's known as a firestorm. Now, a firestorm is a very specific scientific term, not just the name of a movie starring Howie Long from the 90s. Firestorm is a very specific scientific term. Superheated flames at least 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. So if it's only 1,999, people are like, go back to school, get to 2,000. But if it's at least 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit and it has winds of 110 miles per hour or stronger, it doesn't can be over that. That is what is considered a firestorm. So it's moving incredibly fast. You can't outdrive that, especially not like in a like a Hyundai or something. You would, I mean, you're 110 miles an hour, and it's 2,000 degrees. Even if you were in a car that say was going 120 miles an hour, by the time you started to put distance between you, your tires would melt. And they didn't have cars back then, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> they were just totally boned. It torched everything. A fire tornado appeared and hit a train, knocking the train cars over. Now, that might be a little dramatic. The train wasn't moving. It wasn't like, keep going, keep going. And it's like, and there's like this tornado chasing it. They're like, we're too close. It was just sitting still. I, I, I should have made that specific from the beginning. It was just sitting there. And fire tornado, knocked stuff over, knocked over a train car. Now, 1800... 75 square miles burned. So bigger than both of them. Wait, was that bigger than both of them? Now I have to double check the Great Michigan one. Oh no, it was smaller than Great Michigan one. Okay, so, but still, first is the worst, second is the best. 1,875 square miles burned. So many people died. They don't know. Their best guess. So in Chicago, we had 300. In Great Michigan, we had 500. The Pastigo Fire. Between 1,500 and 2,500 people dead. It happened within, like, minutes. You have this huge death toll. Because the fire was moving super fast, and it was just cutting everyone down. And this is the interesting thing. Well, it's not interesting. It's quite dark. So many people died in the fire, there weren't enough people left to identify remains. So they just started throwing them in a big pit. Entire families and neighborhoods and communities, no one was left to say, Oh, that's Joey, and that's Margaret, and that's Malcolm, or whatever. There was nobody left to say, oh, yeah, I know that guy. Because they all needed someone to go, hey, I know that guy. And they were just all burnt to a crisp. Some people said, because, you know, there was that water in the middle. Some people go, hey, I got an idea. Let's hide in the water. Now, that's a good idea if the flames are coming. 
But it was also October in Wisconsin. So some people jumped in the water and they survived, but other people died of hypothermia. I talked about that on a previous episode about ghost boats, where the boat was on fire on one end and it was covered in ice on the other end and it was going down to the Tagahoochee or whatever. That you had your choice, you could either burn or freeze to death. And that was the same thing here. You could jump in the water and risk freezing to death, or you could stay on land and it was 100% chance of burning. Now, there was one anecdotal story. A young girl saw a cow jump in the water, and so she jumped on the cow and held onto its horn until the fire passed. I think that story's totally fake, because I don't know how good swimmers' cows are. Plus, I'm a little iffy whether or not cows have horns. Anyways, they might. But I don't think they're strong swimmers. I don't don't think that is a skill that cows are normally known for. Now, this was a tragedy, obviously. And there's not a lot of funny stuff in a tragedy. However, I did read a story about a man. His neighborhood went up in flames. His house went up in flames. And he ran into the smoke to save his wife. He didn't slip on banana peel. It's not that type of funny, but... He would that actually would be pretty funny too, but he runs into the smoke to save his wife. He grabs her, he picks her up, he runs out of the smoke, he runs down the street, he gets away from the fire, looks down, it's not his wife, it's another random woman, and he began wailing, wailing, because he knew that meant that his wife died in the fire. Now, that sounds like something you would see on a Looney Tune. Bugs Bunny runs, well there's no Looney Tunes where a giant fire kills everybody, but Daffy Duck Runs into a house to go rescue... Does he have a girlfriend? Well, Danny Duck. And instead he runs out and it's, he's holding Bugs Bunny in a wig. And he hears the horrible cries of Danny Duck dying in the flames. And then they cut to just a roasted duck sitting on a plate and he's wailing. I call BS on that story too. It sounds horrible, but I call BS because how would that story be related to anybody? Either the guy is sitting in a bar and he's like, yeah, you know the biggest regret of my life. One day, I ran into a burning building and saved the wrong woman. And the other people at the bar would be like, well, yeah, that's kind of sad, but she saved a human life. So he wouldn't tell that story. The, I don't think the woman would tell that story because then she'd be like, yeah, one day I got saved, but he saved the wrong woman. I should have burned horribly in that fire. And I don't think a bystander would have not known what was going on. So there's really no one to relay that story. I think it's, again, anecdotal. But another note, Before I get on the conspiracy theory, because I'm not just going to talk about people dying horribly in fires. The government, so everyone was more focused on Chicago, but the U.S. government steadied the Peshtigo fire. And they said, how can we make this fire happen artificially as a weapon of war? So they studied wind patterns and they studied burn stuff. They're like rubbing charcoal between their hand and they're like, yep, okay, now I know how to build a perfect weapon. They're like, seriously, dude, you just rub some charcoal between your hands. He's all tasting it. Yeah, let's go to the lab. So anyways, when they started building incendiary bombs, they looked at the model for Pastigo to see what would be the best environment to drop them in as far as structures and as far as like weather, what would work best. Because firestorms happen, but they're kind of rare and they're super dangerous. So it's not like you want to be out there in the field studying them. So when they started firebombing Dresden and Tokyo during World War II, they modeled the bomb, they modeled the bombing patterns and stuff like that from what they knew from the Peshtigo fire. You can, if you can take the power of nature and turn that into a weapon, you're nearly unstoppable. That's something Cobra Commander does. But anyway, so the U.S. government did that. 
Let's get to the crazy conspiracy thing, though. At the time, again, people focused on the on the Chicago fire. And I should also say that Pastigo fire, all of their communication devices burned down, so they weren't able to get out the message that, hey, we have this big fire. So, looking back, researchers, armchair scientists, things like that, came up with a theory. They're like, how could you have these huge fires all happening on the same day, starting on the same day, across such a large geographical area? If they were closer, you could say embers from Chicago went to Michigan and embers from Michigan went to Bastigo. And there was even more fires in America that day, but none of them hit that level. So people started to come up with a theory. Meteorites. Now, at the same time, there was this comet that used to exist. It's completely dead now. But at the same time, there was a comet that had been flying around. It showed up every six years. It was called Bela's Comet. And every time it got back, it got a little more small, broke into two, and then, you know, broken even less and stuff like that. But 1871 was when the comet was supposed to come back. Now, they hadn't seen it the past two times, I believe, that it had come by. And so scientists were like, oh, it must have completely broken up because we already knew that it was starting to fragment. But the theory is, is that chunks of it crashed into Earth and the pushback and started these fires. It was basically like a shotgun blast of fires hitting across America. The pushback, the scientific community has said, this is interesting because there's a lot of dispute and then the other people have pretty good arguments. The debunkers are saying, well, meteorites aren't hot when they hit the ground. You can actually walk up and pick one up. Now, that's a lie because I saw the blob and you can't touch those rocks. Actually, wait, no, that one was super cold. That's not right because I've seen other movies where the rocks come down and they're super hot and they go, ow, actually, no, even those movies, they go, ow, it's so cold. Anyways, Scientists, point one, they come down, they're so cold, I saw the blob, it's too cold to touch. But the pushback, the other guys were saying, the cometarians will say, they're saying, well, that's true, but it's only cold a millimeter deep. And it's only cold if they're of a certain composition. So we don't know for sure that all of them do this, but the ones that run, that people run up and touch or the ones that contain blobs are cold. However, they could be hotter. So the debunkers go, well, comets are ice. So it can't actually, like, fall down and set fires. So another point, debunkers. The cometarians said, actually, we know that the Beale comet passed through an asteroid belt and started bringing asteroids with it. And we don't know what was the, what those were full of. They said it could have been full of methane, which would be explosive, or this other chemical that I don't remember, started with an A-C-E, that is also explosive. They said the comet itself may have disintegrated. It may have never shown up to Earth, but it threw these other asteroids at us like a shotgun, and they just hit across America. And people at the scene of the fires said, preceding the fires, you saw fireballs coming down. Now, I take that with a grain of salt, because they probably had a lot of smoke in their eyes, and... Really, the chances of them, like, looking up and then seeing a bunch of fireballs coming down, I think probably stuff was on fire and they may have seen fire stuff, but who knows? Because um, that they don't know why so many fires started on that same day. And what's interesting is a lot of the debunking articles were like, it was really dry. It was a dry season, which is true. But are is the month of October well known for having a bunch of fires? I mean, I guess we had all those wildfires in Los Angeles not more than a couple months ago, but 
I don't know. I think about it. The, it was cold enough in the water that you could die of hypothermia, but you could also have a massive fire going on on the shore. So that's why the temperature thing is kind of throws me off. So did the breakup of a comet cause these massive fires? Can it happen again? I don't have the answer for either of those questions, but I think they're interesting questions. And I think it's crazy that all these fires, and again, I just highlighted three of them. There were a lot of other minor fires and in Canada, but there was in multiple states. Like I think Iowa had a fire. Like you had this stuff, this big circle, not close enough that embers could fly from one state to the other, but close enough that if nature took a giant shotgun and filled it full of asteroids and comet bits and just went Poof, close enough to do some serious damage. So who knows? We won't know actually until it happens again. And hopefully it never does, but we will see. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio. Twitter is at Jason O. Carpenter. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys. <laughs>